CSI presents The Standard Show, the podcast that brings you the stories behind the standards with Matthew Childs and Cindy Parakil. Today's episode is on achieving net zero with standards. Hello, and welcome to The Standard Show. My name is Matthew Childs, and I am with Cindy Parakil. Hey, Cindy, how are you? Trying to pick up the pace. And you? As always, trying to pick a good wheel to follow. Now, the aim of this podcast is to bring you the stories behind the standards. And in this episode, we are looking at the issue of net zero, but doing it a bit differently and talking about a hot off the press BSI white paper. Now, the white paper is called The Role of Standards and National Standards Bodies in Achieving Net Zero. And we'll hear from the two co-authors. Alan Mayo is an innovation and smart city strategist. And well, Cindy, you're not going to believe this, but the other co-author is someone called Cindy Parakil. I mean, what are the chances? I know, right? Yes, for it is I, Cindy Parakil. (laughs) Now, in this BSI white paper, we make the case that if countries are to truly undergo the major transformation required to achieve net zero, it's not just about decarbonizing the energy system alone. It's much wider than that. It's about transforming the economy as a whole, transforming the society and the way we live. And this is where international standards and national standards bodies have a crucial role to play in addressing one of the key barriers in the net zero transformation. And that is building trust in that process of transformation. Yes, and Cindy seamlessly goes and beautifully goes from podcast host to podcast guest. (laughs) Thank you. Now, in in this chat with the authors, we'll hear about why and how the paper was developed and also about how standards can help to address another of the key barriers to achieving net zero, and that is tackling how it will be funded. I also ask Alan and Cindy about what will happen next, now that the white paper has been published. You do indeed. Also in this episode, we have our standards desk of news and the latest of our My Favourite Standard. And this time it's the turn of BSI colleague Tasha Bambridge. Her story is about a standard and kite mark that lots and lots of us are benefiting from every day. One that involves sofas, mattresses, elephants and humpback whales. It's a really good one. Now, a reminder that here on The Standard Show, we really welcome your feedback. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts, especially if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Find and follow us on Twitter at Standard Show and on Instagram at The Standard Show. And check out the show notes for all of the ways to get in touch. Do you want to help make people's lives easier, safer, and more enjoyable? If so, why not become a standards maker with BSI and have your say on the development of standards? Standards affect all of us every day, wherever we go, whatever we do. By defining good practice, they help people, organizations, the economy, and society to do things better. We welcome applicants from all fields, backgrounds, and career stages. Our goal is to have a balance of views around the table. If you want to make a difference and shape the world through standards, start your standards-making journey now by visiting bsigroup.com forward slash get involved. 
Now, in this first part of my conversation with Alan and Cindy, I speak to them about why the Net Zero White Paper was developed and how standards and national standards bodies can address one of the big barriers to achieving net zero, and that is the issue of trust. But naturally, being the standard show, I started by asking them both about their standards journeys. So, Alan, welcome to the standard show. Uh, thank you. Delighted to be here. <laughs> it's great to have you on. And Cindy, well, from host to guest, how does that feel? Ah, well, we shall find out. <laughs> Feels good. Now, Alan, we will get to the white paper, but here on the Standards Show, we love a standards journey. So what's yours? How did it start for you and where are you now? Well, um, I hate to say this, but I go back some time with BSI uh, and my journey actually started in around 2007, 2008, when... Um, a geeky young man from uh, the National Physical Laboratory in Teddington was assigned to me to work on nanomaterials. Uh, ministers were getting worried and senior officials were getting worried that uh, the reaction to nanomaterials um, was beginning to have some negative vibes and they were concerned that it would go the same way as genetically modified crops uh, and the like, where effectively innovation was being blocked by consumer concerns about the unknown. And in the case of nanomaterials, Prince Charles was talking about the grey goo, uh, which a rather pejorative term. So this uh, young scientist um, from NPL was assigned to me to uh, try to develop uh, a PAS in the area of nanomaterials um, to, to help improve at least uh, some bring about some understanding uh, of what this subject was about and then a whole series afterwards um, to try and uh, allay concerns uh, uh, about technology developments in this area clarifications corner a publicly available specification or PAS is a fast-track standard produced by BSI usually sponsored by industry leaders government trade associations or professional bodies it's developed by a steering group of stakeholders selected from relevant fields. It's also a different route to developing an international standard. So that was my first acquaintance, and it went so well that, um, well, the minister, it was David Sainsbury, Lord Sainsbury at the time, said, well, where's the next one? Uh, which I had no answer to, but uh, I never forgot that experience. And back in, um, in, in, in around 2013, I was developing a strategy for the government on smart cities and perceived that there was this, was this problem of trust between local authorities and big tech. Um, and I realized, well, actually standards and a quick way into standards through the PAS mechanism could be a way of promoting trust, promoting this mutual understanding between, if you like, two divergent sets of organizations the local authorities and big tech. And that's where um, I first met up with Dan Palmer and other uh, colleagues in BSI. And uh, as part of that strategy, uh, we embarked on a series, a suite of uh, passes, the 180 series, um, with 180 defining uh, what we mean by smart city, smart city terms, PAS 181, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that um, was really the, the backdrop. And then um, much more recently, um, I've been working with Cindy on equally path-breaking work to, to, to explore how standards uh, can be made much more central to the great societal transformations of our time, namely um, net zero, 
and digitalization. And we produced two white papers on that uh, that have been very well received, as you will hear from Cindy. <laughs> that's a nice that's a nice uh, journey there, Alan. We've got we've got young scientists, smart cities, and Lord Sainsbury into that one. That's fantastic. <laughs> and how, how about you, Cindy? It feels super weird asking you this, <laughs> given that we've asked so many people about this on the podcast. But when did it all start for you? I know, right? Weird to answer this question. But for me, it started um, when I was working for UNIDO, um, the um, United Nations Industrial Development Organization, as an economist um, on a project to analyze why products from developing countries are getting rejected at the border of the EU or US market. And that is when I first stumbled uh, upon this invisible infrastructure called the quality infrastructure system, which is fundamental in ensuring the acceptance of test results of products and ensuring mutual recognition of these results across borders. And um, yeah, standardization is a key pillar of that system. So I was really just fascinated to learn more about this um, quality infrastructure system, a framework that I actually never came across um, during my university time. And yes, I wanted to learn more about it and really see how to leverage it to support developing countries um, in trade and beyond. So I joined BSI and I've been doing some exciting work with um, Alan, um, as he just mentioned, but we'll go into that. Yes, join BSI and the rest is history, as they say. Now, <laughs> yes, I'm interested in the backstory to the development of this white paper and you know why it's been published now. So, Cindy, tell us about this. I assume COP26 and the path to 1.5 degrees looms large here? Yes, absolutely. But it all um, began a year ago where I wanted to understand how we as BSI and the standards community can really help developing countries in their digital transformation journey um, as we know that the developing world is being left behind. So as Alan mentioned a year ago, we wrote a BSI policy white paper on the role of standards in digital transformation and digital trade. And what we found was that trust is a key barrier to transformation and that the potential of international standards to build trust in the application of new technologies and the overall digital economy has been heavily underutilized and particularly in the developing world. Um, so we ran a mini survey in the Caribbean, in Africa and in the UK to understand the level of uptake of standards in these key areas. And what we saw was that it was significantly lower in the developing world. And then obviously with um, this, you know, climate change and countries uh, racing to achieve net zero, what we also observed um, was that there is this growing global mistrust in carbon reduction claims and that, you know, company uh, that companies and countries were making and there's this, you know, rise of greenwashing. So once again, we see that trust is a barrier in this net zero transformation. So building on the digitalization white paper, um, we thought it would be worth exploring the net zero transformation. Um, agenda and we ran once again a mini survey of developing countries and we found the exact same situation as in the digital um, scenario uh, when we asked about the standards being used and about the resources that are being allocated towards this um, except in Uganda very little resources being deployed by national standards bodies in this agenda and that was really interesting and that energized us to look at this even closer and write a BSI white paper. And Alan, in terms of the sort of main target audience for this white paper, who are we looking at here? 
Well, I actually think there's something in this white paper for almost everyone. Um, but I suppose my main target uh, audience is aimed at UK policymakers, at least in the first instance, in, in both national and local government. And the reason for that is I think we need to move rapidly from setting emission targets, all the stuff around nationally determined contributions and the like, to actual implementation. Uh, and at the moment, most countries are well off the pace. Um, there is a huge gap in uh, where we are now and where we have to be by 2030, as COP26 revealed. And I think that um, the UK should be leading the way on this. Um, and of course, um, the, the current situation uh, where you know, unleaded petrols, anything to, to almost two, two pounds a litre today, um, this is concentrating the minds of, of, of everyone. Um, gas prices are going through the roof. Uh, there's a 50% increase in the price cap. So we definitely need to be taking urgent action to um, modify uh, and completely adjust our, our use of energy uh, and taking and take other steps so that I think would be my, my a starting point but my target audience is also the development agencies and regional banks these regional development banks because although they only account for a relatively small proportion of uh, climate change finance around 10 percent they uh, are, I think, the key, um, because if they adopt international standards as part of their lending strategies, then investment banks, the private finance would follow suit. And it's the power of leverage here. So it's leveraging in the private capital, crowding it in uh, to transform uh, performance. And international standards could then become as, uh, as Cindy has said, the global currency of trust in terms of project appraisal and project finance. Um, but that in the developing world obviously requires capacity building. Uh, and so we need to work with governments in developing countries and their national uh, standards bodies uh, to help them see how to incorporate standards into their own procurement, into their own strategies and the like. But let me be a little bit cheeky and say that um, your own BSI colleagues are also uh, one of my target audience um, because I'm not sure that they appreciate just how important their work is in transforming society to net zero. And BSI is an extraordinary repository of, of knowledge and experience, um, a, a truly knowledge-intensive organization. And I think the question um, is how to channel this knowledge in a way that eases the path to net zero and contributes to the global good. So. Um, I, as I said at the, the outset, I think uh, there's something in this white paper for almost everyone. Now, we've all become familiar with this with this term net zero, which we should probably remind ourselves is the balance between the amount of greenhouse gas produced and the amount removed from the atmosphere. And we reach net zero when the amount we add is no more than the amount taken away. Now, as you mentioned, Alan, no, was it, no one is under any illusion here. This is going to be a monumental challenge. So, Cindy, maybe tell us about what are those barriers to achieving net zero? Well, at COP26, the UN Secretary General did shine a spotlight on standards and highlighted the importance of international standards in building trust in the outcomes of policy interventions and the claims made by organizations relating to carbon reduction. But 
I would argue that there needs to be a much wider recognition of the fact that international standards play a key role in underpinning and building trust in the new service systems themselves. So, for example, um, providing assurance that distributed renewable energy systems are reliable and um, the net zero intelligent transport system is actually intelligent. So, essentially, people need to buy into these new systems. They need to be sure that the new services and systems such as renewable energy and electric vehicles are robust, resilient, um, secure, and that their privacy remains intact when using them. That is so important. And yes, regulation and legislation are absolutely fundamental in building trust, but they're just the starting point. Trust is built on deep engagement and systematic engagement between governments, regulators, organizations, and people. And that's, and the standardization system, I think, does just that. It builds trust. Building trust is at the heart of the standardization system. And three things are really critical here, Matthew. So first um, is that the standards development process is all about convening a wide range of stakeholders. It's about collaboration. It's about reaching consensus to address a gap in the market. And second, um, that national standards bodies are neutral conveners that can manage this national process independently with their respective governments, regulators, citizens, businesses, and academia. And that is a role that BSI has played in the UK and is playing in the UK. And so finally, as standards are co-created by this variety of stakeholders, then the uptake of these standards should be rather straightforward. So policymakers should really view standards as a stakeholder-driven tool to help accelerate the achievement of public policy objectives. So this interplay between standards, standardizations, standardization and regulation is so important in building trust. Cindy, you, you spoke about building trust there at the national level, but what about mm-hmm. the international level? Oh, yes, absolutely. And the benefit of standardization does not stop at the national level. Um, They can help bring global coordination and even perhaps they're the most cost effective way for collating and diffusing knowledge across borders. So when an international standard is created, for example, an ISO standards, its members, which are 165 um, national standards bodies, so one per country, they have the chance to get involved and co-create it, which in itself has deep international buy-in and worldwide credibility. So Um, The ISO system is essentially a vehicle for sharing good practice amongst these 165 countries um, and building trust in the outcomes and interventions across borders. A corrections corner for me here for my double error on the issue of ISO members. ISO actually has a membership of 167 national standards bodies. So... Really, I believe that is the beauty of the international um, system here. And I should also mention, Matthew, the 2021 London Declaration, something that we have spoken about on the podcast before. And I think it was the COP26 episode, um, which is a commitment by the standards community to consider climate science in all ISO standards to improve the international system altogether. 
And actually, there's a neat parallel that I'd like to make um, to COVID. So in fairness to governments around the world, there was a clear communication strategy aimed at people to say that, you know, the actions taken are based on science. And this is why we recommend it, which arguably helped build trust in the minds of people. And this is what the London Declaration is essentially doing, saying ISO standards consider climate science, which provides more credibility. So... All of these actions, considering climate science, convening a wide range of stakeholders and this process of consensus really contributes to building trust in the net zero transformation. But um, to truly address this issue of trust, standards need to work in harmony with certification, conformity assessment and the wider quality infrastructure system. We'll pick up the rest of my conversation with Alan and Cindy later. But for now, Cindy, back from podcast guest to podcast host. It's that time in the episode. Shall we have the Stannis Desk of News? Yep, let's do it. ISO turns 75. Yes, last month, the International Organization for Standardization, or ISO, celebrated its 75th anniversary. The ISO story began in 1946, when 65 delegates from 25 countries met at the Institution of Civil Engineers in London to discuss the future of international standardisation. And a year later, ISO officially came into existence with 67 technical committees. Since then, ISO has developed more than 24,000 standards, covering everything from the nuts and bolts to cloud technology, with a membership of 167 national standards bodies. Standards freebies for net zero. BSI is working with the UK government and the Race to Zero campaign to supply 100,000 free copies of ISO 50005 energy management systems. The free copies of the standard are being sponsored by the Department of Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy as part of their commitment to support SMEs to manage their energy performance and help the UK to meet net zero. ISO 50005 provides organisations with a means to develop a practical, low-cost approach to energy management. And finally, the IEC Global Impact Front. SMEs have a well-recognised role as innovators in technology. So because of this, the IEC has launched a new initiative called the Global Impact Fund. The fund provides grants to SMEs to help solve specific environmental, social or governance challenges using IEC international standards and conformity assessment schemes. While projects will generally target one specific country, the idea is they can be replicated in other countries or scaled up for regional benefit. And that's the Standards Desk of News. My favourite standard. So hi, I'm Natasha Bambridge and my favourite standard is BSEN 16139, Furniture Durability and Safety. So in my role, I get to work with retailers to help them communicate their consumer promise. So once they're awarded the kite mark, they can then tell their consumers how that differentiates them. And I worked with DFS to create the domestic furniture kite mark. And since then, it's been awarded to other organisations such as Next. So it's one you see on the high street. And, And this, for me, really brought the potential of standards to life if consumers understood what they can be assured of with the particular product, that that product is better and why. 
So BSEN 16139, so Furniture Durability and Safety. And it's a standard that's for non-domestic seating, but we applied it to a domestic setting as we always want to raise the bar when we award Kite Mark. And this particular standard refers to test methods that you would use for testing sofas, recliners, sofa beds, you know, mattresses. So, so they're things in your home which you spend a little bit of money on them. It's an investment piece and, and you, um, you spend actually a lot of time using them as well. And these test methods are, they're really technical, you know, and they're applied by experts who perform those tests. And what we wanted to do was bring them to life so that consumers understood them. So we reviewed them and they they talk about the force and the load and and how many times you'd need to repeat that load to say something like the the footrest of a recliner or, or, you know, of the seat to say that seat's durable. And we looked at that and thought that's really gonna mean not a great deal to consumers and it's gonna be far too detailed to explain to a consumer when they're in a retail store buying their furniture. So instead we spoke about how the testing was the same as having an elephant walk into your home and sit down on your sofa 1,457 times, or a humpback whale lay on your mattress 1,700 times. And for me, it was really a moment on how we can help consumers to understand the benefit of standards in language that they can relate to and that they understand. And I always think of this standard. So, you know, whenever I'm in my house and I'm, I'm telling my kids to stop treating the furniture if it's a playground, you know, or I hear a thud from upstairs because they're practicing their latest skill of front flips on my bed. I always think back to that standard and, and how actually my kite marked mattress and sofa can withstand that sort of use because it was it was tested to those standards. I, I don't tell my kids that, of course, though, when I'm banning them from using their tablet. So for me, 16139 is a really great example of how standards can give you that assurance of quality and performance and the importance of of also ensuring that consumers understand what that means um, when they're buying products so that they can make informed decisions when they purchase. So that's my favourite standard. Every year, BSI and its partners offer young engineers the chance to take part in the IEC Young Professionals Programme, all expenses paid. This high-profile professional development programme brings together the world's upcoming expert engineers, technicians and managers, and provides them with opportunities to represent BSI and the UK in shaping the future of international standardization and conformity assessment in the field of electrotechnology. The next program takes place in October and November 2022 in San Francisco in the United States. To find out more about the program and how to apply, visit bsigroup.com forward slash education. Now, in this second part of my conversation with Alan and Cindy, I speak to him about another of those key barriers to achieving net zero, and that is access to finance. They also share their thoughts on what they expect to see happening in the next year, five years, and by 2050, in terms of embedding standards in strategic projects and public policy. But I started by asking Alan about what are the other key messages from the paper. Now, one key message from the paper is the need to complement sectoral net zero strategies with spatial ones. Alan, can you tell us more about this and also what role do standards have to play here? Yeah, I think this is a a really important chapter in in the white paper because 
But if you look at the work that's been carried out to date by the IPCC and our own uh, Climate Change Commission in the UK, there's understandably uh, a focus on the sectors which are uh, generating the highest emissions, the energy sector, the transport sector, manufacturing, the built environment. It's all sectorally driven. But my starting point is, is that by 2050, 70% of the world's population will be urbanized. They'll be living in towns and cities. 80% of glo global GDP will be based uh, in towns and cities if it's not already there now. And two-thirds of energy consumption and emissions and waste are coming from cities. So the spatial dimension is critical. These problems, these, these challenges all come together uh, in where we live. Um, and I suppose the, the, the second point I would make is that, yes, uh, we do obviously need to make significant technology improvements in those key sectors which are uh, emitting uh, carbon, energy transport, etc. But um, policymakers need to realise that net zero is actually an exercise in systems transformation and systems integration for example, between energy and the transport sector. Uh, and it is behavioural change at scale, at global scale. And this requires um, smart urban design. People now with petrol at two pounds a, uh, a litre are saying, I can't afford to commute. Um, so the question is how to reduce the use of the motor car. So urban design, the, the concept of the 15 minute city is becoming more and more important. And this transformation requires data and systems integration. It requires what's known as semantic interoperability, that the, um, the, the, the IoT, the Internet of Things, um, is uh, truly semantic, that it understands the data that's coming through and that machines can take decisions, whereas people in the past have taken them. Um, and it needs to be secure and of course has to have the support of all stakeholders. So this is where uh, standards really come in because for things to be interoperable, you need for the whole system and the information going through it uh, to be uh, based on standards. Um, so uh, this, is, this is really about uh, an agenda which includes not just green hydrogen and solar technology, but data, data integration, digital technology and its application in an urban environment. And, and as Cindy says, um, this is about trust uh, and, the, and the citizens need to be confident that the lights won't go out, that the new systems will work and that the state won't invade their privacy. And so we come back to the importance of standards in this process um, and to, as, as Cindy uh, mentioned, certification, conformity. And we come back to... Um, one of the things that we're developing at the moment in relation to digital transformation, and that's the standards-based digitalization toolkit to give people much more confident in the security of the di digital systems in place. Um, and so I think the key, the key point I would make is that uh, what you really need, and, and, and we just alluded to this, uh, that we need a, a, a bridge to net zero, where we have a national framework for change, 
Um, but behavioural change can only come about at the local and city level. And uh, the, the, the COVID word has been used already. And um, COVID really does show you that, yes, governments can set the national framework, but it's only at the local level that people re you know, respond and make the behavioural change that's required. Um, and that is our uh, this bringing these two things together is our bridge to net zero. And I, I like to think it's a, a really important contribution to the debate. And, and the, I suppose the final point I'd make on this is you wouldn't today build a new aircraft or a luxury cruise liner without the aid of a digital replica, replica or a digital twin. And so it is for cities and towns. We need to develop the concept of digital twins um, because they really will help planners and help citizens understand how the cities can be designed better and how the cities are actually performing uh, in relation to uh, net zero and, and, and other issues. Um, so those digital construction, digital twins, they're underpinned by standards. And one of the great things is, is that BSI is actually at the forefront of these developments. Now, Alan, I just want to take us back, actually, to another one of the barriers that, that Cindy mentioned, I think that you both mentioned earlier, and that's access to finance. So do standards have a role to play here too? Well, um, finance is, as Cindy said, one of the critical barriers, and the numbers are truly massive. We're talking um, about green, the green bond market growing to a trillion a year um, over the next five to ten years. Um, the, 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 the needs for finance are such that it's estimated that uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, to just to undertake the energy transformation, it's going to account for 6% of GDP. 6%. Now, just to give you a feel for this, we're, unfortunately, at the present moment, we're focused on um, defence spending. And defence spending is 2.3% of GDP in this country. I think it's 3% in America. So um, we're talking about levels of investment purely in um, clean energy amounting to something like three times the, 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 the level of defence spending in the UK. You know, GDP for GDP. Um, so the, the, these numbers are massive. It will not be done by the public sector alone. It will not be uh, funded by government. Um, the fact is, is that something like 70% or more of this funding will have to come from the private sector. Now, from my perspective, and I think uh, if you if you uh, speak to the, the, the various uh, commercial banks and investment banks, they're looking for some sort of... Uh, well, they're looking to be confident that what is being undertaken will work, that the uh, emissions targets will be met. Uh, and so what you're seeing um, evolving is a growing demand. And Guterres at uh, COP26 said, I want standards and I want reliable standards. Um, and this is where uh, the international standards bodies come in and have a critical role to play uh, in order to give the private sector, the confidence that these new systems will work and that they will be achieving the targets that are being set for them. And what's interesting, if you actually look at the green bond market today and, 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 and its trend over the past few years, it's not just increasing in size in leaps and bounds, but it's also showing a, a, a what's known as a greenium, a price premium and an interest rate premium on green bonds you can you can borrow if you can substantiate your claims 
um, and if they can be verified and validated and certified, um, you can get a, a reduced uh, rate of interest on your your, your your green bonds. So standards and certification and verification of performance becoming absolutely critical to this whole area of uh, green finance. Cindy Allen uh, was talking there about the, the United Nations obviously being a massively important stakeholder for, for this sort mm-hmm. of work. I suppose in, in preparing the white paper, I know you consulted widely with stakeholders. I wonder what sort of reaction did you get? A very positive one, Matthew. We got some actually some fantastic level of engagement, especially with organizations that we have not engaged um, with in this manner. So um, during COP26, uh, we launched the peer review process, um, including the World Bank Group, um, UNIDO, um, the African Development Bank, ISO, and some leading private sector organizations. And to summarize, they mentioned that the paper really demonstrates the power and the value of standards and national standards bodies in offering solutions at scale and pace to achieving zero carbon and also to unlock the much needed finance um, to fund this transformation that Alan just mentioned. And we really had um, a wonderful level of cooperation from organizations like the World Bank where there is interest from both sides to explore where the synergies lie and um, to collaborate on follow-up actions to really drive change. And this is just super, this is really exciting uh, development. So looking ahead then, I'm maybe thinking sort of in 12 months or in five years and maybe, you know, obviously by 2050, you know, what would you have hoped to have happened? I may come to you first on that one, Alan. Uh, 12 months? I think, what do we do in the next 12 days? Is that critical? Um, But no, in, in, in the next 12 months, I would have hoped that we can have moved from setting targets and uh, actually be working on implementation uh, on the ground uh, with properly funded action plans city by city. Um, I would hope to see uh, the bringing together of the next level of demonstrators to show uh, how we can um, hit these levels uh, that we these targets that we we need to hit in terms of projects. So demonstrator projects to build on recent experience. Um, And we've got good experience already in the last few years, but we need to keep moving this agenda forward. And I would um, hope to see that the UK is at the forefront of uh, developing standard strategies to promote that transformation and um, providing the thought leadership and that BSI can provide the thought leadership as we move to COP27 um, and uh, and here on out. So that's my 12 months agenda. In the next five years, um, I really do hope that uh, we are back on track towards the 2030 target. There is a, a huge gap between where we are now and where we have to be by 2030. So in five years, it really is about implementation and that the uh, levels of emissions are back on the 2030 target or else we are in serious trouble. Um, I would have hoped over the next five years that the um, capacity building that we've been talking about, that the engagement with uh, development bank, regional development banks and uh, the World Bank and the like uh, result in standards becoming much more central to the transformation agenda than they are today. And that um, national standards bodies, because of the capacity building, are 
playing a much more important role as agents of change in the way that uh, we envisage uh, in the white paper. So um, we really do have to make progress over the next five years, not not in, as I say, in terms of just piloting and doing the odd demonstrator project, but serious rollout, serious implementation, uh, and bringing standards to bear to ensure that the private finance can uh, has the confidence to invest accordingly. And by 2050, well, I just simply hope that I'm alive by then to see this all come to fruition. So, Cindy, coming to you then. So how about, you know, you're looking ahead in 12, 12 months, five years time. And by 2050, what do you hope to have happened? Well, I echo everything that Alan said. Um, but from my perspective, I would really hope that standards are embedded in this policy nexus. So based on all the work that we're doing, policymakers, national standards bodies and regulators, that they work together to use this consensus based approach to tackle net zero. Um, then I also hope that standards bodies and BSI um, take lead in developing foresight activity with government and um, the business community, which will help us to develop route maps for um, standard strategy. And we should aim to share that with international standardization organizations and the developing world. And my ambition in all of this is that um, to really make sure that development banks and capacity building organizations recognize the importance of standards in sustainable economic growth um, and that standards are embedded in policy tools, in uh, metrics, in maturity models, and that, as Alan mentioned, standards are being used in lending strategies. And we should be working together with partners to do just that. So there's plenty of room for everyone to, you know, collaborate and really take this agenda forward. And as a final thought then, uh, Cindy, what are the immediate next steps? Well, Matthew, um, we'd obviously want people to read the paper first, uh, share it widely and really engage with us. And immediately after that, we want to work with our national and international partners, drawing on the fantastic wide consultation process we had for the white paper to embed standards into policy tools and strategic projects, because that is the only way we can bring about the transformation needed to achieve net zero. Well, how was that for you, Cindy, being a guest? I very much enjoyed sitting on the other side of the table, but um, I must say it does feel good to be back. How was it for you, Matthew? Well, yes, you were a great guest, but it is good to have you back, definitely. Oh, thank you. <laughs> but let me ask you, what did you learn from this conversation? Well, I suppose from my side, I think the big takeaways are that you know, sort of building trust lies at the heart of any successful major transformation. And it's no different for something like the transition to net zero. And that, I suppose, um, engaging people effectively, that's, you know, key to the acceptance of that transformation. And we need areas to fund to fund it. I mean, it's a massive issue funding the transformation to net zero. And we need public and private investment to do that. And underlying that, you know, international standards and national standards bodies, and we would say this, wouldn't we, given that we are we are BSI, we are a national standards body. But it is true, you know, standards have that really important role to play in all of these areas. And in particular, I think because we need them to be delivered at pace and at scale. And that's just absolutely critical. Wow, that's that was just beautiful. I couldn't have put it better myself. Do I, uh, do I, do I get the, still get the job as host and interviewing the guests? 100% permanently. It's all yours. You're hired. <laughs> Um, but from my side, I think I'd like to emphasize a point that Alan made um, on the need to complement central net zero strategies with spatial ones. 
Uh, what does that mean? Well, in simple terms, 70% of the world's population will be urbanized by 2050. And this is also where 70% of the emissions will lie. And what this means is that we urgently need to rethink how cities are designed. And it is important that the energy, the built environment and the transport systems interact with each other in ways that they have previously not. But digital technology and infrastructure really enables that interaction now. And standards have an important role to play in this entire process. Um, but finally, I suppose what I'd really like to say is that this white paper is just the starting point. We would really like people to engage with it and tell us what they think. Are you on board and ready to take action to accelerate this net zero transformation? So please get in touch. You can find the link to the white paper in the show notes. Yes, go online, take a look, have a read, pass it on, and most importantly, get involved. Well, that's the show. Our thanks to Alan Mayo for talking to us for this episode and for providing his expert insights. And thanks to you, Cindy Parakil, for being such a good and knowledgeable guest. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for having us. <laughs> Our thanks also to Tasha Brambridge for sharing her My Favourite Standard. And of course, to thank you for listening. You have been listening to an episode of The Standard Show with Matthew Childs and Cindy Paragill. Subscribe to us now, wherever you get your podcasts. You just heard a stripped media production.